Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Adjua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a new feature of Living Proof. In addition to listening, subscribing to, and sharing podcasts, you can now rate and write a review of each episode of Living Proof. To rate or write a review of a podcast, just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Create Your Own Review button. We look forward to hearing from you. Hi, I'm your host, Peter Sabota, at the sunny campus of the University at Buffalo. Get ready for a journey in paradox. In this episode, author and journalist Robert Whitaker turns a critical eye towards psychiatry's and society's conventional wisdom about treating mental illness. Here, Mr. Whitaker describes what he has discovered as he explored the evidence that is utilized to guide the treatment of psychiatric illness in the United States. Mr. Whitaker begins by discussing the history and rationale for what is referred to as evidence of the success of the use of psychiatric medications and ends his discussion with some recommendations for what would be necessary to bring about change in the delivery of drug-based treatments in the care of people with psychiatric illnesses. Along the way, he offers a challenge to the societal belief that things are much better now than in the dark days of stigma and social control in responding to mental illnesses. He also offers the provocative revelation that the evidence suggests that the drugs believed to cure mental illnesses may in fact make matters worse and induce chronic illness in many patients. With a focus and review on the long-term evidence of drug-based treatments, Mr. Whitaker argues that today's use of medications cause as much harm as they do healing. He describes what he believes the impact of current practices in psychiatry has on the training of practitioners, the decision-making of patients and their families, and the responsibility of therapists who attempt to assist the mentally ill. He goes on to discuss his review of evidence-based practices that are both alternative and mainstream in their approach to care. Robert Whitaker is the author of four books, including his latest, Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and The Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness in America. In addition, he is an award-winning journalist, and previous to writing books, he was the science and medical reporter at the Albany Times Union newspaper in New York State. Mr. Whitaker was interviewed by Amy Manning, a doctoral candidate here at the UB School of Social Work. One of the questions that I had thought about when I was reading Men in America was that uh, you wrote two other books as well, um, right. but on the... On the Laps of Gods and The Mapmaker's Wife. Which are very interesting and compelling novels in and of themselves. But in those books, you use more of a character development to tell a story of the people in those time periods. But in Mad in America, you really start in on more of the investigative reporting type approach. And was there a reason why you chose to do that with this book? It's how you begin the book. What's the intent of the book? What's the focus of the book? And they, the different books lend themselves to different sort of approaches and narrative strategies. And both Mad in America and Anatomy of an Epidemic were really investiga investigative-type journalism pieces, ultimately. I mean, they are histories, 
but nevertheless, there's a sense of what do we really find when we go through the documents. I mean, so a lot of it is a document-based scientific story. I mean, there's cultural information as well, and finding out what um, individuals who enter the system, what they think of things, so you do have those voices. But it's really the sense, of the, the focus is on, let's look at the system of care we've had through historical times and how it's doing. And when you do that, you really have to be uh, sort of hard-edged on the documents is what it, what it means. It's just a different focus from the other two books. When we look at anatomy of an epidemic, one of the things that I noticed when you started this book was you did talk a little bit about why you chose to visit the topic of evidence-based information and mental health treatment. I think many of the readers and listeners would be interested to kind of hear a little bit more about why you chose this. This is really key. That's a great question. And I think it's important to understand this sense of evidence-based medicine and how really this is an exercise in evidence-based medicine. There's a reason why, in my background, why I believe in evidence-based medicine and sort of even as a journalist trained to think that way. And evidence-based medicine just means that, uh, you know, doctors can be a little bit deluded about their merits of their therapies. I mean, that's what the history of medicine tells us. And so one of the, and we also know that anecdotes, this is, you know, the, the stories of individual patients really can't govern care because individuals have very different responses to therapies and all. So evidence-based medicine is this idea that science will give us this light, this sort of ability to look in a big picture at our therapies working or not, and in what ways are they working and in what ways are they, they not. Um, so that was the sort of mindset that I brought to this book. And now, why did I think it was necessary to bring that to the story of psychiatric treatments today? Because, of course, if, if you had a leading psychiatrist sitting in this chair, he'd say, well, we have plenty of evidence for our form of care. You know, our drug treatments are, in fact, evidence-based, and we use our drugs in, that are in a way that is consistent with that evidence base. But the question that sort of immediately calls that into question, of whether this form of care we have right now is really working in the big-picture sense, is I looked at the number of people who were on disability due to mental illness, and this was just a starting point to sort of measure, as we've embraced this form of care, are we seeing disability rates go down? And are we seeing even, and it's not just the total number of disability, but is there good evidence that really the long-term course of these disorders is, is improving? And you find, of course, very quickly that the disability rates have risen dramatically in terms of people on disability due to mental illness. And that just raises the question, what's going on? Do we have evidence that the drugs work? Well, certainly psychiatry will say that it does. And in fact, there is a certain type of evidence there. Um, do we have a cultural and societal belief that the medications as paradigm of care has represented a dramatic improvement in care? Absolutely. So we have all these reasons to believe that, in fact, Thorazine ushered in this psychopharmacological revolution, right? And yet we have this one question. Why then are we getting these rising disability rates? So there's a conundrum there that I sought to explore. And the only way to explore that is to look at, well, what does the evidence say? As if, and we're going to try to trace the evidence all the way back like through 50 years of outcomes literature. What does the evidence say about this form of treatment? Is it shifting outcomes for the better, or is it shifting outcomes for some odd reason for the worse? And we're going to try to see what mainstream research can tell us about that. And that's really the focus of the book. But the, the key thing here is it's taking this main principle within medicine, that medicine treatment should be evidence-based, and it's applying that to this topic. That's absolutely the approach. You briefly mentioned a piece that psychiatry has a, an evidence base for the use of medication. Could you talk to us a little bit about what that evidence base is? Yes, it's, it's 
two parts, okay? And it doesn't matter really which, which one you're talking about, whether it's schizophrenia or depression, etc. The first is that in randomized trials, so you take, let's say, uh, and these are six-week trials, to see if they, uh, the drugs are effective in curbing acute episodes of psychiatric distress, whether they be psychotic symptoms or depression. And in these randomized trials, of course, you'll, you'll say you take 100 people, you put 50 on drug and you put 50 on placebo, and then you have a target symptom, let's say depression, and how are we going to measure that? And then you have a target symptom or, or say psychosis, if it's a drug for schizophrenia, and then you just see after six weeks, has that target symptom abated more in the drug-treated group or the placebo group? And generally, um, it's the target symptom abates more in the drug-treated group, okay? And that becomes, that's why the drugs get approved by the FDA, and that becomes evidence for use in sort of short, uh, curbing acute episodes of psychiatric distress. And one small thing, the, the debate we're having right now about the merits of antidepressants is really about, do they meet that standard of curbing acute episodes of depression better than placebo over a six-week period? That's what sort of has surfaced recently. So that's the first part of the evidence base. The second evidence base is, okay, once people are on meds, how long should they be maintained on meds, okay? And what researchers did was studies like this. They would take, a, say again, 100 people who've stabilized well on the medication. And the reason you have to have good responders is, of course, because the symptoms must have abated. You can't be treating people who are actively depressed or psychotic. We've got to see people where the symptoms have abated. And then in these studies, what they do is half the people, they abruptly withdraw the drug from and they actually are most nearly all are abrupt withdrawal design. The other people, you maintain the people on the drugs, and regularly those who are abruptly withdrawn from the drug relapse at a greater rate than those maintained on the drug. This was perceived as evidence that uh, the disease returned when the drug was taken away, and therefore the drugs, in fact, prevented relapse. They prevented the return of these symptoms, and that became the rationale for using medications, whether it be antipsychotics or antidepressants, long-term on a regular basis, okay, because they prevented relapse. But now you can see there's a hole in the, in the evidence space. And by the way, this is not just me uh, identifying the hole. There's a, a gentleman named Emmanuel Stitt, well-known psychiatrist and researcher and does meta-analyses and these sort of things, who I think it was 2002 tried to find out, are we really nevertheless improving the long-term outcome of schizophrenia with these drugs? And that means our Long-term, are they less symptomatic or more symptomatic? Are they more likely to work or less likely to work? Questions like that, functioning well or not functioning well. And he said, you know, when it comes to long-term outcomes, we really just don't have that evidence. And then he says something about psychiatry as a whole. He says, if we really want psychiatry to be based on evidence-based medicine, and we take another look at the evidence, we run a genuine risk of finding out things that are contrary to our beliefs, is what he says. And the reason is, whether you're looking at depression or schizophrenia, there is an absence of evidence in the evidence base that shows that we're really improving the course of these disorders for the better. And let me even put that in your mind in terms of a sense of what I mean by this. Let's imagine now we have 100 people newly diagnosed schizophrenia, newly diagnosed psychosis. And let's put 50 onto meds, conventional care. But this other 50, let's try to treat, say, with community care, but not put them on meds. So this is going to be a not initially exposed group. Theoretically, we're going to see in this not exposed group something more of the natural course of schizophrenia, the natural course of psychosis. Well, if we follow both groups out now, three years, who will be doing better? Well, this is very different than the drug exposed and drug withdrawn group, okay? This is a never exposed group. 
And that's really what you need to know because that tells you whether you're improving over the natural course of the disorder. And that's a very different thing. And that's what is missing from the evidence base. And that's what I try to flesh out here. What's sort of the natural course and how are we shifting it for the better or for the worse? And also looking at non-clinical outcomes. By that I mean is the evidence base in psychiatry is associated with the diminishment of, of distressing symptoms. It really isn't talking about employment rates, functionality, are people getting, in, you know, what's their social lives like? It's not looking at those questions. And I think you do need to look at those questions too. Do you think there's anything that's preventing us as researchers or as scholars from going ahead and looking at those outcomes for people with mental illness? Yes, and this is very unfortunate and tragic, I'd say. And this is one of the things that I'm trying to do with this book, and hopefully uh, we will broaden our understanding of what the evidence base is. There have been a number of studies actually done of the sort I'm going to talk about, whether it be for schizophrenia or depression, that have tried to look at the long-term outcomes. And I'll, I'll give you a very specific one. In the uh, late 1970s and early 1980s, the National Institute of Mental Health began following a group, a researcher funded by the National Institute of Mental Health named Martin Harrell, a psychologist at the University of Illinois. He began, he began following a group of 64 schizophrenia patients. Okay? Now, this is going to be our best long-term observational study that we've really ever had okay? in the entire history of the care of people with schizophrenia uh, since the drug era. And at one year, two and a half years, four and a half years, seven and a half years, 10 and 15, he just looks, how are the patients doing? Okay, Are they asymptomatic? Are they working? Are they, how's their social life? Have they been in the hospital? And are they on or off medication? And it's just, it's not randomized, so people, there's some you know, self-selection going on. And here's what he finds. He finds that after two years, there is a group of patients that's gotten off medication, and they're now starting to do a little bit better than those on medication. And then by the year, over the next course, the next two and a half years, that group off medication as a group actually improves quite a bit. Whereas those on medication, they sort of stay at the same level, such that by the end of four and a half years, roughly 40% of those off medication are in recovery, and more than 60% are working, by the way. And in terms of those on medication, it's only 5% in recovery, or 6% at that time, and very few are working. So we see this startling finding. It's totally contrary to what we think should be happening. Now you follow that forward for 15 years, another 10 years, and at the end of 15 years, though that's still the divergence remains. Recovery in the off-medicated group, 40%. Uh, recovery, uh, recovery in the on-medicated group, only 5%. You'll also see that there are very few, there's only about 16% of the off-medicated group in the worst outcome section, whereas nearly half of the on-medicated group are in that worst outcome section. So at the very least, this, this study raises questions, and we, we need to incorporate it into our understanding of the merits of uh, psych, uh, you know, antipsychotics for schizophrenia. And we can have a debate what this means, what happened in this study. He published his results in 2007, and uh, no newspaper reported it. It did not appear in any American newspaper, any magazine, anywhere. Why not? Well, the, the National Institute of Mental Health did not put out a press release. The American Psychiatric Association did not put out a press release. The National Alliance for Mentally Ill did not put out a press release. There was no attempt to alert the press. Okay? Now, imagine just for a second if the results were the reverse and the medicated group was 40% recovery versus 5%. You can be sure there would have been press releases and that news would have been announced in the papers because it would have been seen as confirming our societal beliefs and psychiatry's beliefs. 
Anyways, part of what I do in anatomy of an epidemic is identify study after study like this. I mean, there are numerous studies about long-term that unfortunately do not support the conventional wisdom, that challenge the conventional wisdom and raise questions about whether we really should be medicating uh, people as a matter of course long-term. They never appear. And they don't appear in the psychiatric textbooks either. So residents aren't learning this information either. And the reason they don't appear, of course, is a capitalistic answer is when you do see these long-term studies, it makes you think that maybe we need to use the medications in a very different manner, maybe much more of a select, uh, limited manner. And that's the threatening to this enterprise that is very financially successful, and frankly, it is successful for the psychiatric profession as well. So that's the problem. The storytellers in our society have decided to selectively present evidence to uh, the population, and even some of the evidence they present is rather spun, and, and they have with great consistency, kept this long-term evidence from the population. The, the first time the Martin Harrow study appeared in any American newspaper was act, after I gave a talk in Worcester on this very subject. That was the first time, and that was in 2009, I think. That's part of my plea. We need to know all the evidence, and if we get these outcomes that are contrary to what we believe, we should discuss them as well and try to say, well, what does this mean? In terms of the Martin Harrow study, how was that presented in the 2009 APA textbook? What did they say? Because it's such a high visible study, they have to mention it. So they, they put it this way. They did not give the data. There's nothing about the divergence in, in, in outcomes. But the author's right. This study showed that there are a few people who can do okay without the continuous benefit of medication. The spin is incredible. They don't give the actual information. And obviously we need the actual information. In the study that you're referencing, you said there were 64 people right. that were followed over a long term. Is that a much different number than on the medication trials that last for six weeks? Some of the medication trials will be higher numbers because it's easier to sort of keep track of people for uh, six weeks than it is for 15 years. It's hard to do 15 years. And plus, there's obviously going to be a, a considerable expense in going around interviewing 64 people as they split into different areas and all. Whereas, I mean, that's actually a large number for a long-term study. And his follow-up was very good, by the way, in terms of not losing people. Yeah, no, some of the, especially the drug trials funded by the drug companies, they'll have a lot of patients. I mean, in the Zyprexa trials, I think there was 2,500 patients in all the trials together. So they have a lot of patients. You speak throughout your books. You give a few examples of people who do suffer from mental illnesses or parents of children who have been diagnosed with mental illness. And you talk about them making the decision to either use medication or not use medication and how families or clients look at the information that's presented and sometimes come up with drastically different conclusions as to what they're going to do for the, their course of treatment. Could you talk to us a little bit about how some people you've encountered have experienced their decisions to either take medication or not take medication? I think there's a, a real a commonality here, and the commonality is they, they're not given much information. They're sort of saying, take this, it'll work. I mean, that's really the it, and these are safe, and you don't really have to worry about the side effects. So, so often, the immediate moment is you got this problem, these drugs work, and it's really not much more than that. I hate to say it. With a parent deciding whether or not to put his child, his or her child on medication, that is a profound moment in life. That is an extraordinarily profound moment because you, when you do put your child on medication, you clearly are, are putting them down a certain path. Okay, and, those, and the drugs, as everyone will agree, do cause changes in the brain. So 
that is extraordinarily profound and difficult decision. And I think, at least when the parents I interviewed both said, we just didn't have any information. We don't really know what we're doing. You know, they were told their children had chemical imbalances. Well, the problem, that's a story that is often told to parents about, the, you know, the kids or often even to adults. But if you actually look on the science of that, that's a marketing story. That's a story to try to present the drugs in a certain way to the public as if they're antidotes to a known disease. And unfortunately, that, that's just not true. I mean, that, they haven't found chemical imbalances. The drugs actually do something very different. And this is part of the misinformation that goes into the decision-making process. And I think uh, people should be told the truth, is that if your child has some symptom that is bothersome or vexing or whatever the symptom might be, okay, fine, but we really don't know why. Okay, we do not know the biology. Of, it's not that they have a known disease. Okay, it's not that we know that this is what's happening in the brain. We just don't. Okay, and in that sense, we don't really know how to fix it. We're not fixing anything known that is known to be wrong. We have these drugs that act on the brain in certain ways, and we have a pretty good sense of how they act on the brain, and pretty good sense of how the brain reacts to that drug. But that's a very different paradigm, and I think we should be honest about that. And sort of the Unfortunately, in this field of medicine, there hasn't been the great breakthrough in understanding the biology. And it's undoubtedly because, well, there could be many reasons, but the brain's a very complicated place. Um, but there just hasn't. And unfortunately, many great medical advances come from when you understand the pathology and then you really can craft a, a treatment for that. That's one thing I think that's missing. So I think there's misinformation, that, as if you have a chemical imbalance and that's going to fix it. That's really not true. The other lack of information is what are the long-term ramifications? Do you have evidence that this is going to help your child prosper in school, be healthy, grow up to a healthy adult, get a job? What's the evidence show? And once you take that long-term perspective, especially with medicating children, it can be problematic. And I think people need to know that long-term, have some sense of the long-term ramifications too. I think that should be part of the evidence base. It should be part of what we talked about. And But the response was also with with therapists to incorporate that information into their own forms of care, into the information they do give to patients, and, the, and their own decision-making process. So we all need it. Our whole society needs a broader understanding of what these drugs really do and uh, what is the evidence base. In your book, Man in America, you talk a lot about the history of how people with mental illness have been treated in our society pretty much over the course of modern time. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about how uh, the medications that have come about in the last 50 or so years have changed how people have been treated? The societal belief is that uh, in the modern era we were much better. Okay, that If we look back in the the pre-drug era, the pre-Thorazine era, there was a lot of stigma and a lot of sort of casting out, the shunning, that whole thing. And even if you, you know, there's a sense that sometimes people were, you know, put away in sheds and all, and that sort of thing. It's, it's a, the, the true history is a bit more complicated than that. But anyway, the study is, and now we are much more humanistic, okay? And that uh, this is sort of a enlightened era, we're getting rid of the stigma, and we're much more compassionate. I think we're being a little bit too self-congratulatory, <laughs> to be honest with you. I'm not sure things are, are as terrific as people think. I mean, I think there is a sense. Some things that happen, I think, are really good. I think there, in some ways the stigma is decreasing. I think in terms of 
the sort of how care is delivered and in sort of therapeutic environments, the voice of the person being treated is actually being listened to a lot more. And the voice of people who've been in the system, whether you call them peers or consumers or whatever, is starting to be recognized more, I think, it's sort of in academic levels and in, in state government levels. And all that's really great. That's a real improvement. On the other hand, you know, if you're a patient who doesn't want to take the medication, you get a lot of resistance pretty fast, especially if you're seen as a, someone with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. You can be under a court order very fast. And when we look back at forced treatments that we now see as uh, not good, we think that is, is really sort of oppressive and abusive. Well, there are certainly many patients, for example, today who do not like to be on antipsychotics, okay? For whatever reason, they don't. They don't like how it makes them feel. It makes them feel like zombies, etc. Well, you know, our system is set up to um, force certain people to take antipsychotics with sort of state authority as well. And that's happening on a scale that never used to happen. I mean, in state hospitals, there were roughly 360,000 people with a psychiatric diagnosis in the mental hospitals in 1955. Well, we have 4 million people now on SSI or SSDI, and many of those people, in essence, are in a system that requires them to take medication. So, and I do have to say, with the kids today, and being put on antipsychotics, it is hard to find much of an evidence base that antipsychotics are helping foster kids, for example. Um, is it helping them grow up? Is it helping them learn coping skills? Is it helping them to be healthy? You just don't find that. And so what's happening to the foster kids? They're being under court orders or basically under sort of a lot of pressure to take antipsychotics. I think the day will come that we see this as an extraordinary mistake. So are we making progress in since the arrival of the drugs and medications? In some ways, yes. And a lot, by the way, I'd say in the last 15 years, and it's sort of honoring the voice of those treated. But there's a lot that we need to do better as well. And I do think it has to go with even honoring the voice of those who maybe don't like the medications, that's number one, and really rethinking whether this use of antipsychotic medications with kids, and is that really justified? Is that medically justified? Because that's a profound moral dilemma, I think. You talk a lot about the number of people that are currently on SSI or SSDI due to mental illness or mental impairment. Um, what are some of the things that you think have led to this dramatic increase in the number of people? Right. Well, the book is meant to explore one possibility. I mean, there could be many factors leading to it, okay? There could be uh, cultural factors. Let's say our society is breaking down in a certain way and people are lonely and therefore have more psychiatric distress. Or let's say it's hard to get a good job and, you know, if you're in a family that where the, there's financial pressures, that can lead to psychiatric distress, and it can also lead, in fact, to a need to be on SSI and SSDI, and maybe the way you do it is through the mental illness door. There's a lot of possibilities. What I wanted to look at, though, especially since we've seen this extraordinary rise since the arrival of Prozac, when we really embraced on a big-picture way uh, the use of these medications, and including the use of the medications for many people initially who aren't really very, you know, they're not dysfunctional or anything like that. It's people, let's say, with a milder bout of depression or anxiety. And so I wanted to look, and I know this is controversial, but I wanted to look, is it possible that in fact our drug-based paradigm of care and the way we're using these drugs is contributing to this? Is it fueling this epidemic? And, and you know, the minute you even raise that question, you get people angry at you. And that question actually raises two subsidiary questions. The first one is the one we sort of spoke about. 
when we look at the long-term course of disorders, say medicated depression or medicated schizophrenia, do we see that these, this treatment enables people? Does it increase uh, sort of work rates or decrease uh, over the long term? Or does it increase disability or decrease disability? That sort of thing. So that's question number one. Okay, and that's one of the things I look at from four major disorders, depression, anxiety, uh, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder. And I will tell you on that, I was completely stunned by the consistency of the evidence that does tell over the long term, long term outcomes can be really problematic. The second possibility is this. You can have a point, let's say you, you have people injuring into care with a, a mild bout of depression, okay? So in the natural course of things, they would just get better. I mean, they could expect to get better if you go back. Much more situational, etc. Now, let's say that person is, goes on an SSRI and has a manic episode. And we do know that mania is a risk of, drug-induced mania is a risk of SSRIs. Now, typically what happens on that, they then get diagnosed with bipolar because they've had this manic episode, and now comes other medications, and often more powerful medications, including antipsychotics. Well, that person now is at much greater risk of going on disability than that person was when they first came into the system. And in fact, many of them end up going on disability. And if that's the case, and actually you do see this real clearly, um, then you have sort of an iatrogenic pathway to disability. You can take people with a mild disorder, and two years later, whatever, they're with a bipolar diagnosis, they're on a cocktail, and now they really are on a path to uh, SSI or SSDI. And you see this with stimulants, you see it with uh, SSRIs, it happens to a certain percentage. With the kids, you see it a lot with uh, ADHD drugs as well. A certain percentage will have uh, bad reactions to the uh, stimulants. Same thing with the antidepressants. So we really need to be aware of this risk, and maybe when if this happens, then they'll say, oh, we're not treating bipolar disorder. We're we're, we need to realize we're treating drug-induced mania, and let's try to let's not keep going down this path. We've got to get them back to baseline, that sort of thing. Those two things are clearly uh, contributing to the rise in the number of SS, uh, people on SSI and SSDI. In your last part of Anatomy of an Epidemic, you write about some solutions. Can you give us some examples of therapeutic approaches that have been shown to produce good long-term outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think the important thing is the solutions here. I'm not looking at alternative solutions like herbs or anything like that. I'm looking at mains, what did mainstream providers do? Uh, in other words, people associated with the government care, societal care, what are they searching out for solutions and finding better? Okay, just so this is, again, really evidence-based mainstream stuff. I think the best example of this is the program in northern Finland, in western Lapland. Um, it's been going since 1992 in terms of how they, they ch switch their use of medications, and it's designed to treat people with first episodes. It's a program that begins with first episodes of psychosis, and when they, when they do their research, they follow first episodes when people first come into the system, and they're following them for two and five years, etc., so, which is really nice because we're getting this initial moment. And what they found, and this actually arose out of a national Finnish study, okay, so what they, what they found is that if you take people with that first episode of psychosis and they have something called the need-adapted approach and that means some people have different needs than others and if you do not initially put people on antipsychotics okay, and you actually try to see if the psychosis will abate with community care, support, intensive sort of therapy but it's really about bringing the community around and providing some safety etc. Um, can you get some people through their psychotic break without putting them on neuroleptics or antipsychotics? And what they have found is yes. 
Oh, by the way, during this time, they'll use benzos to help people go to sleep and all. So it's not an, even during this time, it's not a no-drug thing. It's sort of an as-needed sleep medication thing. And what they found is, as they studied this, is those people who can recover without going on medications, they have the best long-term outcomes. And the illness, rather than becoming chronic, psychosis and all, becomes more of an episodic break and much less of a lifelong break. Now, so, but they do find that after a period of time, some people, in fact, need to go on the medications. And it might be three weeks, four weeks in, six weeks. It's all in the eyes of the, the doctor. Uh, the decision is made in, in conjunction with the patient. And about a third of their patients, at some point in the first five years, go on antipsychotics. But that means two-thirds are never exposed to the drugs. And then, when the, once a person is on it, they look to see. They still want to get the person off. That's the goal. So it's exactly the opposite that we have. And they find that uh, only about 20% of their patients really need to be on antipsychotic medications long term. And they, they, by the way, they're the best studied group of, of patients, I think, anywhere in Europe because they have this constant five-year outcome studies that they keep on been doing since 1992. And they publish the results, peer-reviewed journals and all. At the end of five years, roughly 85% of their first episode patients are, uh, are either working or back in school. Only 15% are in disability. Now, as you know, in the United States, it's like practically a pathway to disability. You're sort of said, you have a psychotic break, sort of expect to be on disability. You're going to need to take these drugs for life. Only 15% on uh, disability. Of that 85%, and that's the group in essence in the workforce, they have a lower unemployment rate in that group than the Finnish background population as a whole. That's how successful they're getting people back to work. Uh, the other thing that's really remarkable here is that schizophrenia is disappearing in northern Finland. And here's why. Schizophrenia, of course, is a diagnosis made after someone has been psychotic for six months, so you can see the chronicity setting in. Well, they're getting people very early on with their psychotic symptoms, and very few people now are going on to where they sort of become chronically ill. In the, before they adopted this uh, selective use approach of medications, they had one of the highest incidences of schizophrenia in all of Europe. They were getting, there's a population of about 70,000, and they were getting about 25 to 30 new cases of schizophrenia a year. And if you look at the incidence rate, that's a lot, okay? Uh, that's almost double what it is in most parts of Europe. You know what they are down now, to now today? Two cases per year. A 90% reduction in, in schizophrenia. They also now have the lowest per capita uh, expenditures on psychiatric services of any Finnish health district. Amazingly, the other health districts haven't embraced this, and there's some reasons why. But anyway, that's an evidence-based model, uh, you know, led by psych a psychiatrist, led by psychologists. It's actually, you know, the people work in the hospital there, Karaputis Hospital, but it's absolutely has a proven track record now of 20 years and all. So that's an example of, a, it's not a no medication thing, it's a best use of medication practice. And as we see, we'll see today, there's reasons for this, and they've gotten better outcomes, so why don't we model after that? And that's one of the solutions I do in the book. Another solution that Britain's beginning to embrace for people with depression is they're saying, you know, the risk-benefit profile for first episodes of depression really isn't very good for my, with the drug. It's not very good for mild to moderate depression. It's just really not a very favorable. The benefit really does not weigh the risk. So they were starting to say, well, let's try alternatives. And this is at a national level. So there's this group called the National Institute of Clinical Excellence that provides adv uh, advice to the National Health Service, okay? And they've said, we should be trying alternatives. And one of the alternatives is, in fact, uh, exercise. So now in Britain, you can go to your general practitioner 
And instead of getting a prescription for an antidepressant, you get a prescription for exercise. And what does that prescription get you? It gets you a meeting with an exercise counselor and regular meetings. It gets you uh, either free or discounted access to a gym. Uh, you get supervision to be in classes. They also want to make sure that your exercise is done in a social environment to sort of break the isolation of depression. Now, there are studies about the benefits of exercise over the long term. One was done by uh, Duke after 10 months. And the Duke study had three, three groups. It had uh, exercise only, exercise plus drug, and uh, drug only. And by far, it was the exercise only group that had the best stay well rate after 10 months. So, um, they expected it would be exercise plus drug, but that wasn't the case. So again, uh, what you're seeing in, in, um, in Britain there is very much an evidence-based solution or type of therapy. And I, I, it's hard to imagine anybody really would object to that. I mean, um, it seems like a healthy thing to do. And of course, as they say, uh, this brings all sorts of other benefits. It's not just the depression lifts. They end up being in better shape. They get better cardiovascular shape. Actually, their diet in turn tends to improve. Um, so it's almost this whole well body thing starts to happen with the exercise. And by the way, the patients, uh, in terms of their uh, response to exercise as opposed to response to drugs, they when they do these sort of... Uh, uh, questionnaires about which do you like, exercise comes out way ahead. So it's something they like, and it feels that it gives them a sense of agency, of control over the depression. They can do something. So all the evidence there says this really would be a, severe, a superior first response than just giving people a pill. I think those are some <coughs> wonderful examples of things that could potentially be done. What do you think that our society, what do you think it's going to take for our society to adopt these approaches that aren't strictly medication-only models? We need uh, to have a open and full-body discussion of the sort that we're having here today. And we need people to become informed about the, the long-term outcomes data because once you do that, we all share value because I think we do believe in evidence-based medicine, okay? And the debate has been polarized too long in this field between drug and no drug. And unfortunately, sometimes just because my writing does bring up questions about the drug-based paradigm. It's, I'm pushed into the no-drug category, but I think everything you've heard today, that's not where I'm at. And, and if you read the book, that's not where. So what do we need? We need honest information, and we need to have discussions about this. So we need to bring out the long-term uh, data, and then you and uh, Catherine and all the social workers from this area need to have a conference, and they need to discuss, well, here's the data. What does it mean? And what, are, what, what can we do differently? And I think what you'll see, and for example, I presented this data at a provider of services on last Thursday night in New York City. And you know what they said? Oh, wow, we need to start a house for first episode psychosis modeled on the Finland model. They immediately said, why don't we do that? That's a good possibility. There's another guy that's featured in the book, a psychiatrist who uh, oversees services in Framingham, which is Eastern Mass. He wrote me an email. He read the book. And he said, you know, love the book. We are going to change what we're going to do. And we're going to change in a couple of ways. We're going to try to set up a, a pilot project where we do not medicate everybody first episode right away. And he said, frankly, we're going to set up a project for those who want to try withdrawing from their medications. Uh, we're going to give them support. And we're going to see how that goes. Now, that's an evidence-based strategy, too. If you see that long-term, there are, in fact, many people do well off medications. That's not an anti-medication thing at all. It's Again, it's consistent with the evidence. Thank you so much for joining us today. It seems like we're in an exciting time for evidence-based study and for 
the recovery movement in mental health. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Pleasure. You've been listening to Robert Whitaker discuss evidence-based treatment in psychiatric care on Living Proof, the podcast series at the University of Buffalo's School of Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.